Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that we get to be in your house today. We're thankful for the Word of God and for its power and impact in our lives individually and as a body. And today as we look at the high calling and the qualifications for church ministry leadership, I ask that you would help us to see the mantle of this leadership. Help us to feel its importance. Help us to be um, sobered under the high mark, the high watermark of spirituality that is demanded in this text. And Father, for those who occupy a position of church leadership or just even leading our homes or small group leadership, would you just remind us today of the seriousness of this task? Help us not to play around with your church and help us not to mess it up. So Lord, help us today. Be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and go over to 1 Timothy 3. And uh, we're today going to be continuing in our study of this uh, wonderful book that uh, Paul has written to a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. And by the way, that city of Ephesus was a uh, really important place for the Apostle Paul. He founded the church in that city uh, during his second missionary journey and then returned, we think, in the spring of... um, of uh, a few years later, spring of 54 A.D. And uh, while in that city of Ephesus, Paul had a very thriving ministry. He taught in the synagogue for a number of months. And uh, then for some reason, he was given permission to teach in a particular school in the city called the um, the School of Tyrannus, some sort of famous teacher in that, that uh, metropolitan area. And Paul served there, we know, in the city of Ephesus for around three years. And from there began a phenomenal church planting and uh, missionary effort. Used Ephesus as his base camp. Um, By the time Paul was in Ephesus, the word of God, according to the book of Acts, had spread throughout that entire region. A number of other amazing things happened. For instance, Paul was performing extraordinary miracles during this time. There was um, spiritual warfare that was taking place. People who practiced kind of the magical arts were burning their books And then there was even a riot that happened in the city such that Paul had to flee for his life and for his safety. So this city was deeply impacted by Paul's ministry, and he really loved the city of Ephesus. But it wasn't just the city of Ephesus that he loved, and it wasn't just the ministry at Ephesus that he loved. It was the people in the church, and specifically, it was the the leaders, the elders, the spiritual leaders of this church that Paul really, really loved. Let me show you this. While you got your finger in 1 Timothy 3, take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 20. Because in this account, in the book of Acts, we have this amazingly unique story of how Paul gave a, f- a final charge to the Ephesian elders. The, the background is, is that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. There's a ship that's waiting for him, and he, he gathers all of the Ephesian elders together, and he gives them this last charge. And I want you to hear what he says, and just, just listen to the emotional relationship that Paul had with these elders. This is Acts 20, beginning in verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will men arise speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, this is what Paul says, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That's his charge that he gives to them. And then the book of Acts continues, and the scene ends with this statement. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. You know, there's no other moment like this in the New Testament in terms of this intimacy and this closeness that Paul had with, um, with these particular elders. This church and its leaders were really, really special to Paul. So it's no wonder that when Paul writes to Timothy and helps him know how to behave himself in the household of God, that one of the things he would talk to Timothy about would be how to select leaders, because Paul knew these leaders at Ephesus, and he wanted the legacy of the gospel to continue in this city, but he also knows what you know, and that is this, that the right people in the right positions making the right decisions makes all the difference in the world. Doesn't it? The right people in the right places making the right decisions make all the difference in the world. And this is especially true when it comes to the church. This is especially true when it comes to what it means to be the body of Christ and the importance of godly leadership. So today we're studying 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're continuing our study through this great book. And the question that we're going to wrestle with today is this. Who guards the truth that leads to life? This, this theme, who guards the truth, or this, this guard the truth that leads to life. This is the theme of the entire book of 1 Timothy. We've seen it already in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul addresses the problem of the false teachers, and he calls Timothy to be a, a solid proclaimer of the true gospel. And then we saw in chapter 2, the dynamic of what worshiping together looks like. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this notion of how men and women should conduct themselves in the context of worshiping together. And particularly, I've given you this distinction between command and context. Command being principles in the text that transcend time and culture and context issues where, depending upon what it is, you might interpret it and, and apply it differently in your present setting. Well, we have the same thing that happens here. What you'll find is that the way in which church leaders are chosen or the manner in which they get to their office is often contextually informed, meaning sometimes they're voted on by a congregation. Other times, like in Titus, Paul says, appoint elders in these churches. But the command dynamic of what is here is this, that there are qualifications for eldership that regardless of time, era, culture, place, or where, wherever you find yourself landing in church history, these concepts, these qualifications, these transcend time. These are important. 
Chapter 3 also gives us the theme verse for the book of 1 Timothy, and that is found in verses 14 and 15, where it says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is calling Timothy here to guard this truth that leads to life. And who guards this truth? Who's the one that's supposed to be the gatekeeper for this important message? And that is primarily church leaders. Oh, true, all of us, both men and women, are called to guard the truth that leads to life. We all have to do that personally and in our sphere of influence. But at the end of the day, there needs to be particular people at the ultimate level of spiritual leadership in a church, godly men called elders who take this mantle upon themselves and say, we are responsible, we are accountable for this body of believers. We will guard this truth that leads to life. The selection of these qualified men for spiritual leadership positions is frankly one of the most important tasks that a church or church leaders do. There are few things more important than this. Just to illustrate this, how how many of you have been in the church, the Church of Jesus Christ, not just this church, for more than 20 years? Let me see your hands. 20 years or more. Okay, So all of you who have your hands raised, you know this to be true. If you think back of your experience in church world, you know that there were some seasons that were really glorious and really great and some that were not so great, right? I mean, all of us have those experiences like, yeah, it's kind of a bad season, kind of the dark years, and this was a really good season. And if you look back on that season, my guess is that the dark seasons were directly related to some sort of problem in church leadership. On the other side, beautiful, wonderful things that happen are also usually connected to good, godly, biblical leadership. And what is scary, friends, is this, is that church health and vitality and long-term success is often, if not usually, attached to leadership. Good stuff that happens is attached to godly leaders, and bad stuff that happens is connected to bad issues in leadership. And that is the frightening reality of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. If it wasn't for the spirit of the living God, everything we have would blow up. God holds it together, and yet when there are good leaders who are in the right positions to make the right decisions, the church flourishes. And so what Paul is addressing here with Timothy is the importance of of having qualified people in those positions. So therefore, Paul identifies for Timothy two different positions And then also the qualifications that go along with those particular roles. And these qualifications transcend time and culture. Spiritual leadership is incredibly important. And I hope today that you leave with a sense of the urgency and the importance of this issue. So you can pray, so you can consider how you fit into the picture, and how you might also even look at your own soul and think, you know what, someday, maybe, God willing, I want to be the kind of person who's qualified to be a spiritual leader in my church. So there's two roles that Paul identifies. Let's kind of start from the 30,000-foot view as we move into this week and next. He identifies elders and deacons. Those two roles, they're both leadership roles, are distinct within the church ministry. And um, verse 1 of chapter 3 sets the tone. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. Um, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then in verses 1 to 7, he identifies the characteristics or the qualities of an elder. And then in verses 8 to 13, if you look at it, he identifies the qualities or the character um, dynamics for those who are to be deacons. Now, you need to know that these qualifications for elders and deacons are similar, but they're not completely identical. 
And yet at the same time, Paul identifies that these are both needed positions of spiritual leadership. They, they both involve a sense of calling. They both involve a sense of qualifying character that makes one able to serve in this area. And they also involve a conviction to serve in this capacity. The distinction between them, elders and deacons, is essentially a distinction between function and priorities. They're both important, but they have different functions. It's likely that these two offices emerged and over time, and we see the first instance of this, we think, in Acts chapter 6. Although they are not called deacons, it seems that their role is certainly diaconate in terms of how they cared for the church. And the problem in Acts chapter 6 is that the church was growing, there were elders who were overseeing it, and there was a group of people in the church who were not having their material needs met. And a complaint arose that the, the, these, this group of people were being unfairly neglected. And so the apostles were in a bit of a challenging situation because the the needs of the ministry had grown such that now they needed more people to help. In fact, they, they could address the issue of the neglect of these widows, but they couldn't do that and remain committed to the word and prayer. And so, therefore, someone else, a group, another group, had to step in to help with this very valuable um, area of ministry. Listen to Acts chapter 6. Here's how they describe it. The apostles said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So this diaconate kind of ministry seems to develop, and it seems as though there's a pattern that we can see play out in the book of Acts, which is that when Paul plants churches, one of the first things that he does is he appoints elders. In fact, he tells Titus to do that on the island of Crete. He's to appoint elders, appoint elders. But then when we see, when Paul writes to other churches that are established, like the church at Philippi, or even here to Timothy, who's at the church at Ephesus, deacons are assumed, so there's, there's no appointing of deacons. The appointing of elders happens first. And what seems to take place is that as the church grows, as the dynamics of ministry begin to change, uh, this, this office of deacon uh, begins to emerge in order to help lighten the load and care for the church that's growing and, and thriving. And so what we see is this, this, this distinction between elders and deacons. Both are required to lead, but the platform from which they lead is different. Elders... The primary calling upon them is spiritual governance, spiritual governance, spiritual leadership, whereas the primary calling of deacons is spiritual service. So every church needs godly qualified elders who will govern and lead well, and every church needs godly qualified deacons who will use their gifts of spiritual service. Now next week we're going to talk about deacons and fully unpack that rather long text. But this week we're specifically just going to zero in on what does it mean to be an elder. And I want to try and help you understand what that means even here. So Paul calls the eldership something that is a noble task. Look at verse 1. He says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer... He desires a noble task. So we learn a number of things just from this first verse. The first thing that we need to notice is that Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If you've been studying along with us, um, you'll remember that, that we've heard this phrase before. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? The saying is trustworthy. Where did we hear that before? Well, we heard that in chapter 1 and verse 15, when Paul gave a summary of the gospel, and it sounded like this. 
this statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom or of whom I am the foremost. So if you remember, as I told you last time when we were in chapter 1, when Paul makes this statement and says this is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, he is providing a crystallization of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is essentially this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Paul is summarizing the essence of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. He's summarizing what this church is all about. So if this is your first Sunday here with us at College Park Church, I just need you to know this straight up and up front. What we are all about is what's in chapter 1 and verse 15 of 1 Timothy Our message and what has radically changed our lives is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the foremost. In other words, I'm the biggest sinner I know. I might be able to think of what you've done, but I know what I've done. So so you're the biggest sinner that you, you know. And the hope of the gospel is that Jesus can transform awful, wretched sinners into gloriously redeemed, saved people who now are the sons and daughters of the living God. This is the main message of the church of Jesus Christ. This is why we are here. Because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So that statement, that hugely important statement, Paul begins by saying this statement is trustworthy. Now isn't it interesting the next time he uses that phrase is he talks about leadership. So not only is the gospel important, but also leaders are important. And this is is two ways that a church can fail. It can fail by neglecting the gospel, or it can fail by really bad leadership. And in both cases, the church fails in its message and its mission in the world. So what this statement does, this trustworthy statement introduction, is it introduces something that's really important. And this idea is simply that leadership in a church is very, very critical to the life, to the health, to the long-term success of that church being able to proclaim the gospel in the world. Now, secondly, notice that Paul says that if one aspires, note that word, to the office of overseer, he desires... A noble task. The word aspire means to set his heart on. Or it also can mean to stretch out oneself in order to attain. It's reaching out for something. The word desire means a passionate compulsion. Now, Paul is not suggesting here that one approach eldership as an office to be run for, like some sort of personal campaigning. I'm not distributing some new super pack that I'm going to you know, mark for lead pastor for the next three or four years, or not suggesting that you should pursue this out of some sort of personal ambition or with some sort of selfish intent. But what he is saying, and this is really important, is that there is nothing wrong, in fact it's commendable, to desire to be qualified and living in such a way that you would be considered for this role. In fact, Paul says this is something that's worthy to shoot for, worthy to aspire to, worthy to long for. So taken together, the two terms, this idea of aspire and desire, describe a man who outwardly pursues the ministry because of a driving compulsion on the inside. One of my prayers for this message today is that there would be some, some young men, I, I think not just single men or even older married men, I mean like young men, like 9, 10, 11, 12, who today might for the first time think, you know what, at some point in time in my life, I would love to be an elder of a church. In fact, I would love to be maybe even a full-time pastor in a church. 
Because i got to tell you, when I was 10 years old, sitting in an audience, not not dissimilar to this, and I heard the pastor preach, and as I was taking notes, there was a burning, literally a burning in my soul that I knew this is what I want to do with my life. And so I knew at age 10 that this is what I was going to do. And I just want to issue a call for young men to say, you know what, this is something you need to consider for the calling of your life. And while there are many other things that are really wonderful for you to do in life, there are very compelling reasons for you not to enter pastoral ministry or not to be an elder. I want you to set your sights on maybe God would call you to this area of ministry. Because I would tell you, And I think the scriptures would bear this out, that there are few things in life, being God's kind of person, being God's kind of parent, God's kind of partner, those things maybe are fundamental, but beyond that, there is nothing more important than a man could do than to give his life and energy for the proclamation of the gospel and the care of God's church. Nothing. And so moms and dads, I want to call you today, don't just raise godly young men For the sake of their own godliness and for the sake of your joy, raise them for the sake of the life and health of the future church of Jesus Christ. He says this is a noble task. A noble task. Meaning the spiritual leadership of a body of believers is worthy of a glorious calling. There's an American Puritan named Cotton Mather, and he was fired up about church ministry. Here's what uh, what Cotton Mather said. The Office of Christian Ministry, Eldership, rightly understood, is the most honorable and important that any man in the whole world can ever sustain. The great design and intention of the office of elder are to restore the throne and the dominion of God in the souls of men, to display in the most lively colors and proclaim in the clearest language the wonderful perfections, offices, and graces of the Son of God and to attract the souls of men into a state of everlasting fellowship with Him. He was fired up about being involved in ministry. And I just want to tell you, I'm fired up about ministry, and I want you to be fired up about ministry. I mean, Cotton Mather was thrilled with what it meant to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, he felt that this calling on his life was something that, in comparison to all other things in life, there's nothing that he would rather be doing. Listen to what else he said about comparison to other avenues of life it is such an honorable and important and useful office that if a man be put unto it or into it by god and made faithful and successful through his life he may look down with disdain upon a crown and shed a tear of pity on the brightest monarch on the earth and cotton was pretty straight wasn't he by the way, why would you name your son Cotton? That's just, I mean, he's really, he's really. So apparently he had to maybe, maybe buff up his name by being really strong because the guy really loved ministry and he really had a heart for the kingdom of Christ. And his point, I think, is well taken. And in a day and age where our children are offered lots of avenues and lots of paths, mom and dad, I just want to lay before you and young men, I just want to lay before you this compelling call that maybe God would place within your heart to say, you know what, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to give my life to the call of God's church. Maybe it's as a, as a lay elder. Maybe. Maybe it'd be as a staff elder. So Paul's point here is that this is a noble task. And then he says, he, he says that they're called overseers. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now, we need to back up just to be sure you understand the words that are used here because they're really important. Um, There's three different words that are used for elder or pastor or bishop or overseer. The first word is the word episkopos. 
And this is the word often translated in your Bible as overseer or bishop. The word really comes from Greek culture, and it's, it means to, to rule, to supervise, to manage, to lead. Other passages use the Greek word presbyteros, which has more of a Jewish background to it. In fact, Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 4.14, where he says that Timothy shouldn't neglect the gift that was given him when the presbyteros, the council of elders, laid their hands on him. It appears to have more of this Jewish flavor and came out of the governance of the synagogue and also indicates a plurality. It's not just one episkopos, but there's a presbyteros, a collection, a plurality of elders where they are equal in their authority. So the nuance of the words is slight, but it's important. Bishop or overseer probably denotes function, whereas elder denotes dignity and value. Now there's one other term that we're more familiar with, and that's the term pastor. And that's more common. In fact, that's used in Ephesians 4, where Paul says that he gives gifts regarding apostles, um, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. The word pastor, poimeo, literally means to shepherd. And so if there was one image, one word picture that, that the Bible would want you to have of what it means to be an elder in a church, to be a leader in the church, it is the image of a shepherd. And, and really, if you've been around church or ever been in a position of ministry leadership, you would know that, yeah, being a shepherd is really close to what it's like. Because you're, care, you're to care for this group, and you do life with them. So you lead them, you feed them, you take care of them, you love them, you, you, you help them when they're hurt, um, you, you deal with them when they, they kind of run off, you, you, you love them and get in, involved with them. Sometimes you want to beat them, but you don't, and, you know, and, and then they bite, and you're mad, and then you love them. And it's just, it's just what it means to do life, and it's shepherd, it's caring for this little flock. And so Paul uses this word shepherd to describe um, what the role of a pastor is. And then Peter picks up these, these three words, and it's remarkable. He uses all of them in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's almost as though Peter wants us to see the full-orbed reality of what pastoral ministry is all about. And so what I did is I took this passage and I added some Greek words in there for you to see this. He says, So I exhort the elders... Presbyteros, among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, there it is, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Friends, there's, there's few more passages that are more beautiful than that in terms of the picture of the pastoral work. I mean, after all, it, it tells us a number of things. Like, Jesus is the chief shepherd. That's really important to remember. This isn't our church, not my church. This is Jesus' church. He's the chief shepherd. We're like bench players. He's the star. We're junior varsity. He's got the big letter on his jacket. He's, Jesus is the chief shepherd. We're just under shepherds. It, it tells us that we're to rule. We're to shepherd like he does. We're to be a part of the collective group of the eldership. So there's elders. And there's deacons. I've taken so much time to explain this because it's important for you to know that church governance matters. And for that matter, church history has shown us that, that how you understand these words actually affects what your church is like and even sometimes what you name your church. Think, for instance, the name bishop, episkopos. You have the episcopal church. 
or presbyteros. You hear the Presbyterian church. So these words, their meaning and how you live them out in terms of governance has enormous implications for how you do church life. Now with that, let's look at the qualifications. What follows in verses 2 through 7 are the, is the list of the qualifications for those who would serve in the office of elder. And so as, as Paul writes to Timothy, and as Timothy looks out on that congregation, he wants him to use this list as an overlay to discern who would be spiritually qualified. This list starts with one overarching trait and then gives us ten areas in which it's applied. So if you wanted to know what are elders supposed to be, the bottom line of what they're supposed to be is this very first word that we find, this very first characteristic. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, all of the things you're going to see in this list are character-based, except really one thing where Paul says that they should be able to teach. And it's really interesting to note this, that the qualifications for eldership have more to do with who you are than what you actually do. They have more to do with the essence of your character, the the bigness of your heart for Christ, the godliness that you have, than your skill set, your ability, your talents, or how brilliant one is. And this is really important, because you know as well as I do that skills and talents and brilliance and and um, and background and life experience, those, those things are all great. But if somebody doesn't have a heart for God, all that stuff goes out the window, especially when it comes to the church. And so what Paul does is he, he firmly plants the priority of who a man is, his character. The elders are called to do a lot of things. For instance, they're called to, to rule, to teach, to pray for the sick, to care for the church, to be examples for others to follow, to set church policy, to ordain other leaders. But the vast majority of what we find in this list is about a man's character. And therefore, Paul begins with the most important one, this idea of being above reproach. The word above reproach means that he's not able to be grabbed a hold of. There's, there's not a handle in his life that could bring him or the ministry down. It doesn't mean that he's perfect, that he's without sin, or that he has no shortcomings. Nobody would fit that bill. But what it does mean is this, is to be above reproach means that a person's reputation and his behavior is such that he would be a credit to the church, somebody who you would be proud of as one of the leaders representing you and your ministry. It means that he is a man who has a blameless reputation and has irreproachable conduct. The reason why this is so important, friends, is because you know that the church's reputation is directly related to the people in it and more specifically to the leaders who are leading the church. So therefore, those who are leading the church need to be morally credible men because it's not just that the church's reputation is on the line. For that matter, the reputation of the gospel is on the line. After all, think of the message that we proclaim. We proclaim that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that Jesus can transform your life, that you can change, you can be righteous, God can change you and make you a new man or a new woman. And think of what happens when a person's moral fiber begins to unravel. Think what happens not just to the message, but to the credibility of that message. In other words... Those who talk about righteousness should be themselves righteous. Those who lead an entity whose primary calling is righteousness ought themselves to also 
be righteous. An elder is not a perfect man, but he is supposed to be very clearly and evidently a godly man. So, he's supposed to be above reproach. Now we have ten areas. Let me walk through them quickly. They're all important. And there's a long list of them here. The first area that he deals with is in regards to his marital faithfulness. Verse 2 says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Now, there's been a great deal written on this particular verse and on this subject, and there are a number of options as to what Paul is referring to. Let me just give you five. First, it could be that he's referring to those who have never married. So, he's talking about you have to be single. Secondly, it could be that he's referring and ruling out those who are polygamists. Third, those who are divorced and remarried. Fourth, those who are widowed and remarried. And fifth, those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows. What's interesting is that in the Greek text, the phrase is literally a one-woman man. Which leads me to believe that Paul is not talking about marital status. So you can, in my view, be an elder or a pastor if you're married or if you're single. He's not talking about whether or not one has been divorced or remarried. The Bible, I think, gives pretty clear instructions that, in some cases, divorce, and if it's a biblical remarriage is allowed, there's, in my view, no problem with a person serving in an elder in that capacity. And for that matter, to be widowed and be remarried, Paul certainly isn't is um, making a point on that. For that matter, he could have very clearly said any of these things very evidently. He's got words for um, being widowed and remarried. He's got words for divorced and remarried. He's got words for these things, but instead he chooses a one-woman man. And in light of the rest of the context, I think what Paul is talking about here is not a man's marital status, but rather he's talking about a man's sexual morals. He's referring, I think, to this fifth option of what it means to be faithful, moral, in regards to sexual ethics. Let me emphasize to you how important this is for church ministry. Make no mistake about it, a man's morals are very, very important. This phrase means that a man is to be marked by sexual purity in every area of his life. Again, church leadership is that important. You know, one of the fears that I have for the Church of Jesus Christ for the next 20 years is that with the onslaught of a growing decadent culture, the assault of pornography and then all the things that go along with that the slippery slope of moral failure i fear i fear of what will happen to the qualifications of of ready able men for the future of, of the church of jesus christ so mom and dad when you work hard with your sons Help them to be righteous and godly. Realize it's not just because of their morality that's on the line. It's just not because of the name and reputation of your family that's on the line. I want you to realize and to be vigilant for the moral purity of your sons for the sake of the future leadership for the church of Jesus Christ. I put on you fathers the mantle to lead your sons into moral purity so that there's a chance for the church in the future. I fear what may happen with a generation who's grown up with far more sexual decadence than what we've known. We need elders who are a one-woman man. 
Secondly, he is to be disciplined. The next three qualifiers relate to one's self-mastery, his ability to control himself, to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled, to be respectable. These refer to the different aspects of the same character trait. To be sober-minded means that a man is clear-headed in his judgments and his actions. So you don't want an elder being somebody who you have to go up to and go, what are you thinking? (laughs) It's sober-minded. You want somebody who when you're in a a tight spot that you think this thought, what would so-and-so do if he was here? Do you have people in your life like that who you think, you know, what would so-and-so do if they were in this? Who, how would they think clearly in this? So sober-minded. Also, he says there to be self-control, which means he's able to rule his passions, his desires, his drives. He's to be respectable, meaning that he is dignified. So the, an elder, the spiritual leaders of a church are supposed to be the kind of people who have their act together, men who are controlled by the Spirit of, and the Word, men who have godly conduct. They're to be disciplined. Next, they are to be hospitable. The word means love for strangers. The idea is that during biblical times, it was often unsafe for those who were traveling to um, stay overnight in various places. And so often the overseers would have to be, be willing to open their homes. And the idea is that elders should have an orientation towards strangers or those in need that is positive and warm and inviting, that their lives should be open, that their homes should be open, that their heart should be open, not closed and cloistered. Number four, he is to be able to teach. An elder must be able to teach others. Sometimes that means formal teaching like we're doing today. Other times it means in a small group or in an ABF class or just one-on-one discipling. The point is not the format or the size of the audience or the class, but rather that This elder has the ability to refute error through the use of the word, to give instruction, that he can handle the word of God with power and with significance. Number five, the text says he's not to be a drunkard, so he shouldn't be an addict. The meaning is fairly obvious and straightforward. What Paul says here is he doesn't require total abstinence, But it's clear that a man who is addicted to wine is not qualified to lead the church. He is to be controlled by the Spirit, not by substances. Number six, he is to be temperate. The next two words communicate this. He's not to be violent, but gentle. And he's also not supposed to be quarrelsome. That phrase, not violent, but gentle, it means that an elder is one who should be gentle and gracious and willing to yield You can imagine what would happen if an elder was a violent man by virtue of his actions or his tongue. Imagine someone coming to church and what you would think if they had a black eye, and you're like, what happened to you? Yeah, one of your elders slugged me. I mean, can you believe it? What would happen? You'd be like, what? I mean, it's just just comical because it's so ridiculous. So someone who's not violent but gentle, furthermore, someone who's not quarrelsome, while someone may not be physically dangerous, they can be verbally dangerous. So elders need to be the kind of men who are secure enough in themselves and in the relationship with Christ that they're not always looking for a fight, looking for an argument, or always looking to be disagreeable because they're so insecure they have to prove that you're wrong and they're right. His character should shine in conflict because if you're going to be an elder, you will have your fair share of conflict. This is in direct contrast to the false teachers who were constantly quarreling and created all kinds of strife. Seventh, he's not to be a lover of money. 
Paul will say in 1 Timothy 6 that money is a root of all kinds of evil. So this, the elders should not be guilty of misplaced affection with money. Their hearts should not be too attached to their finances. He shouldn't use his church leadership position as a means for financial gain. He shouldn't have a covetous lifestyle. Instead, he should have a generous heart that would model how to use money for God's purposes through generous giving. Eight. He needs to have a solid family. Paul makes a very lengthy statement here. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Why does Paul take so much time to talk about this? Because he knows what we know, and that is this, that how one conducts himself in the context of his home is the clearest example of what spiritual leadership is really like doesn't mean that kids are going to be perfect, and nor does it mean that adult children are always going to turn out perfectly. If that's how you think that perfect parents equal perfect children, then you have a problem with a little place in the Bible called the Garden of Eden. Okay? Enough said. And so the, 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 even the best, most godly parents have children who can go AWOL. The question is this, was the mom or dad, was the dad on it in terms of his spiritual leadership? Was he attempting to lead spiritually? And so while, while men and women are in the context of the, of the church of Jesus Christ, they're, they're also, there needs to be this calling upon men. But, but women, let me also just tell you that part of your responsibility is to help raise children to the glory of God. And, and frankly, for young women who are in the process of growing up into their maturity, you might even pray, God, would, would you be so pleased to help me find a man who's so spiritual and godly that he could even become a spiritual leader in the church? That was my wife's prayer from when she was a little girl. In fact, on our first date, she leaned across the table from me and she said, let me ask you, are you planning to be a full-time pastor? And I said, yes. And she said, that's good, because God's called me to be a pastor's wife, and if that's not where you're headed, this is the last time we'll be out. (laughs) And I was like, sweet, I got a live one. All right. She was called. She had a calling. And let me tell you, friends, that calling for me and her is what kept, has kept us in the fight when things are hard and when they're glorious and when they're difficult. Because being involved in church ministry is wonderfully glorious and it's also incredibly hard. And yet there's nothing greater, I think, in all the world that you can give your life to. Ninth, maturity. Paul gives a word of caution here about the danger of moving someone into spiritual leadership too quickly. He says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. That word means he becomes spiritually clouded. What happens if you move someone into church leadership too quickly? They start to think that the ministry is actually about them. Their stuff that they're doing, the, the, the spotlight that's on them, the voice that they're able to have with people's lives, that suddenly it becomes about them and too young of a convert put it into that position can fall very easily into the temptation of the devil. Elders need to be humble men who have a deep respect for the church and a clear sense of their own unworthiness. And finally, number 10, they need to have a good reputation. Specifically, this is good reputation on the outside of the church. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So if a person has a terrible reputation in the community, he and the ministry become an easy target for the devil to create a snare. Therefore, his life inside and outside the church must be above reproach. So 
Some of you, you're, you're, you're leading businesses, you're involved in things in the community, you're, you're doing what God's called you to do. Just realize that what you do has an impact on all of us, and the way you conduct yourself in your office and in the community could very well disqualify you for being eligible for eldership. So be sure that whatever you do, you do all the glory of God. I don't know about you, but this list is pretty heavy, isn't it? And it should be. It's a sober reminder of... Why I said last week that most men are not even qualified to be an elder. It's an important list because it holds a high standard of what church leadership should be like. For some of you, I know as I went through the list, it brought back really bad memories of bad situations in the past. And and I would just charge you, then then be the kind of man or woman who makes a difference and and be sure that, that from now moving forward in your life that that church leadership will be well prayed for, and that you'd be godly. For others, it, it just makes us really grateful for the wonderful people we've had in our lives. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have had people, men in my life, who were really godly, people I could walk after. And if God's put those kind of people in your life, then don't you ever take that for granted. It's a gift that God has given so last week our elders held our, um, or two weeks ago, held our annual spiritual retreat. And I just need to tell you, not only are these great, godly, qualified men, but, you know, most of the time that we spent together wasn't spent on planning and thinking about future for the church. We did a little of that, but most of it was spent talking about our own souls and our need to be spiritually refreshed, about meeting in our accountability groups and seeking the depth of our relationship with the Lord. I remember the phone conversation I had with the chairman of our elders before I came to College Park Church. And he said, Mark, if you come, I want you to know you'll not only be involved in our elder ministry, but you'll be part of our elder accountability, which means people will be pouring into your life and speaking truth into your soul. And you need to know if if you come, that's part of the equation. I remember hanging up the phone going, these people take this seriously. And rightly they should. And I think you ought to be grateful that we take it that seriously. So what do you need to do as a church? What am I asking you to do today? Here, here's two things. The first is this. I'm asking you today to grow and be godly so that one day you might be eligible to be an elder. I'm telling you to set your heart, young men, older men, I'm telling you to set your heart, to guard your heart and your life from patterns that will not only rob you of the honor of righteousness, but also rob the church of qualified leadership. Here, the qualifications of the elders, and set your heart to say, I want to be a godly man. Secondly, I would ask you to pray often for your church leaders. I would tell you it's your responsibility to know who are our elders. Well, it's our responsibility to tell you who they are as well, but I'd encourage you to go home and go on the website and see who the elders are and begin praying name by name for them because you need to know that the spiritual battles that every church faces are very real and the church can be a hard and challenging place and the enemy would like nothing more than to lop off one or two of our elders. And I'm asking you, begging you, pleading with you to pray earnestly for our leadership at College Park Church. Don't ever take godly leaders for granted. See, godly leaders were a great joy to Paul, and no wonder. When the right people are in the right place, the church is a beautiful thing. So beautiful. And my prayer today is that God would help us to continue to be a beautiful church filled with spiritually mature people who are led by godly, qualified elders. 
Would you pray that with me? Father, thank you for the mantle of this text and the importance of it. And we pray that today um, you would give us a vision, a heart, a sense of the gravity of what um, spiritual leadership is all about. We pray that both men and women would use their gifts well across the spectrum of this body of Christ. And in this one narrow area of spiritual leadership of elders, I pray that you continue to raise up godly men who would embrace this mantle to be gospel proclaimers and spiritual leaders in this important and noble office. So help us, Lord. We live in a very fallen world. We have the care of a precious thing called your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.